I'm gonna I'm gonna go back in time. I'm gonna tell a story about when I guess I would say I was young. I don't you won't think I was young. I was a young lawyer though. So maybe I was you know, between three and five years older than you all, and that probably still seems ancient to you at this point. Um, but it was one of my first experiences um, seeing community dynamics of the type that, that we're talking about, intergenerational community dynamics, but also kind of community dynamics you don't see a lot in the United States anymore. At least most Americans don't. They still exist, but only for some communities. And that's because I was in Western Panama. I was in an area called, uh, right around a city called Changanola, Changanola is basically the epicenter of banana production for Chiquita. And I was there um, preparing a human rights report for the United Nations about uh, a group, an indigenous group called the Nave, who had been through a lot. And this is a story of seeing them react to something pretty traumatic that was actually being done in, in the name of, of climate change prevention or climate change. I don't know. At that time, they would have said mitigation. But um, that's why the, you know, it's the time I went to jail, but it's also all about the, the Chance 75 Dam. That's because it's in Changanola, and there were actually 75 projects of that type. In fact, there were more. This is 75, and it went up. Not all of them were built, but they were building dams all over this region. And what you have to understand is hydroelectric power is presented as this really green alternative, right? And in some ways, it is. I mean, it does avoid fossil fuel uh, usage, um, but it has a lot of downsides environmental ones to be sure i mean especially when you build these really large dams you're talking about flooding huge huge areas and creating a giant reservoir and that oftentimes in this case especially was previously you know rainforest forest um forest that's of a very very valuable type for preventing climate change because it sequesters carbon dioxide uh but it also has a real impact on the species there right you're bit flooding this big area, of course, you're affecting the terrestrial species, but you're also affecting all the species that use the river, including some species that spend some of their life up the river and some of their life even out in the ocean, called these diadromous and anadromous species. Um, big, big impacts. But for this, the purposes of this story, the biggest impact is the complete annihilation of four communities that was just built into the project. It's not like an accident. It was part of the plan. And it was part of the plan because technically these communities didn't exist, at least not according to the government, or they shouldn't have existed, um, even though there were agreements that said, you know, basically these were folks who were pushed off other pieces of land and told, you can go here. But because it was within a preserve, the government said, well, we can take this land and you have to find a place to go. And the place to go is often, there's one very cruelly named place called La Solucion, which is... Uh, very far from when these people lived up in the mountains down in an island off the coast. Um, and it was basically no man's land. It was, uh, I mean, it should have been a beautiful uh, mangrove swamp, but actually um, it had been so polluted because it was wedged between the airport for to serve a growing, very quickly growing, some of you might go there, SFS has a program, uh, growing tourist trade in Bocas del Toro. Um, and on the other side of it was the sewage treatment treatment. I'm, I'm going to use that more generously, big open pits, basically, but trying to deal with the sewage from just so many people coming in. Some people who had very good intentions, I'll, I'll note. People who thought they were doing ecotourism, people who thought this is a beautiful place. Even some people who wanted to come experience indigenous culture, just totally overwhelming the infrastructure and resources. And this is sort of where those folks were to go. So rewinding before they got there, and unfortunately, we did get to the point where the, the bigger 
piece was lost. I am going to talk about, about a victory, though. Um, and that victory came because the pre-construction of this dam pushed some generations together. There had been a growing rift between the generations, not of animosity, but just different lifestyles. These communities were way up in the mountains. No, no car road went up there. There were walking trails. No cell signal. No electricity. These are people who are used to sort of, you know, keeping to themselves and to their to their neighboring communities. But as very understandably, they want their kids to go to school. Uh, Panama said the nearest school we can actually staff is several hours away walking. And that meant a lot of kids would spend the weeks, weekdays with, you know, kind of relatives or maybe just people they kind of knew going to school and would come home on the weekends. And that meant they were exposed to a very different life. This wasn't a big city they were going to, but it was a town that did have cell service and electricity, and they they just saw a different future for themselves. And after school, a lot of them went to work for the biggest uh, employer of the region, which was Chiquita Banana. Uh, a lot of them went and became, you know, the sort of workers who were, were you know, cutting the bananas, packing the bananas, everything you can imagine. You know, one of the biggest brands in the world, right? Um, but around this time, there was sort of growing... Uh, to say the least, um, people were getting angry. You know, the, the dam was starting to go up. The time was coming closer and closer that the, these villages would be flooded. And um, there's some protest. And the government and the company behind it, it's a company based in Virginia here, AES, reacted in the worst possible way. I mean, they were already doing very bad things, but their reaction was to suppress in the most um, egregious way possible. Uh, it was it was called um, Le Trenta, or what people, you know, Law 30, or what people would also call uh, the Le Chorizo, because, you know, the joke is like sausage. You, know, you don't really know what's inside of it. And what was inside of this aviation law were um, the elimination of the need for environmental impact assessments for big projects that were sponsored by the government, um, protection for police in the course of putting down um, they basically they could do no wrong when they're putting down protests and basically totally cutting out any right to protest um, what are you going to do when the government passes a law that says you can't protest what would you do you protest right and so there <laughs> this this ended up bringing all you know everybody together again because there was a realization from the folks who were who were still kind of living in the the communities up up the mountain that the folks who knew how to organize the protest the best were their kids and grandkids who were on even even though this was a while ago on their cell phones texting with each other they could get a crowd together and um and they did and so i found myself i was there you know preparing this report about hydroelectric dams and the impacts and all of a sudden this law blows everything up and that's what everyone's focused on so i found myself sitting around a fire one night where they kind of held a meeting, a big meeting, and trying to bring some of the young people in, bringing in the people from the communities who had the traditional respect. One person um, was, you know, a sort of informal leader at this point. They weren't electing or naming this, but everyone kind of recognized him as what they called a cacique, which was basically a type of chief chieftainship, if we put it into English, doesn't fully translate. But he was there, and, and the idea was to try to muster everything they had but they were arguing. It's an age-old argument. Your back's against the wall. What do you do? Is it a show of force? Is it diplomacy? You know, you can imagine the arguments. If, if we if we try to do a show of force, if we go out there and, and really escalate the protests, we're going to get hurt. 
and we're going to lose, right? They have overwhelming force. If we don't do that, this may be our last chance to protest ever again, right? If we don't do that, we're going to be in trouble. Um, and everyone started to argue a bit. And, and the, the, I, what I presume to be the oldest person there, you know, my apologies to him if he wasn't. He looked like the oldest person there. He kind of, you know, made a gesture and everyone sort of fell quiet. And he said, you know, what's important here? And, you know, it sounded so like such gravitas. What's important here? But he, I think he knew he needed to diffuse the situation. What's important here is that we're all sitting together killing mosquitoes. Because, man, it was a terribly hot and muggy and mosquito full night. And everyone's slapping. And it's so hot that you can't, you know, wear long pants. But it's the mosquitoes are eating us alive. And everyone laughs a little bit. And then they come up with this plan. And the plan was... There's another divide here, not just a generational divide, but literally a divide of the community because half of the Navi people live on the other side of the border in Costa Rica, but they've really lost contact until recently, until people started using social media to try to reestablish those contacts. And the idea was maybe, you know, in Costa Rica's kind of known to be a more progressive country than Panama, especially when it comes to things environmental. So the idea was maybe if there were protests in Costa Rica, they could get some pressure from the from that side. And so the idea was to get these folks. Um, but it was pretty dangerous at this point to travel if you were if you were indigenous. They were stopping people. They really were trying to contain everyone. So I got nominated to be the one who would go across the border. You know, I dressed up like my best tourist, put on my backpack, you know, I'm just here to have a good time and and the, the border crossing is it's the Sixaiolo River that, that divides the two countries. And it's just a rickety bridge. I think there used to be a rail crossing there. I, I seem to remember rail tracks, but it looks like it hadn't been used in decades. It's mostly just a place where people walk across, and most of the people going back and forth when things aren't tense are just local people because you have family on either side. The border doesn't mean that much to the local people. Um, so I'm walking across. It's, I've done it a number of times. You pull out your passport. They take one look. They stamp. Somebody's barely paying attention there. And it happened that way again. Got my stamp, and then I'm like, okay, I've got to make my way to this. And before I know it, someone's stopping me. It's never happened before. And they say, well, can I check your passport? It's a random check. That's really weird. I just got stamped right there. I mean, you know, it'd be one thing if you stopped me like several miles in, but you just saw it happen. No, no, let me see your passport. And he opens up. Well, you, you've got an exit stamp. You're not supposed to be here. You're illegally in the country. And I said, okay, I'll just go get the right stamp. Just, no, no big deal. It's right there. Nope. I have to take you into custody. So I'm just sort of arguing. Before I know it, I've got I was going to say handcuffed. That sounds dramatic. It was more like a zip tie situation that they had um, and thrown in the back of a pickup truck. This is like the least like official arrest that's ever happened. It's like back of a pickup truck and we're driving down this very tiny road that's in, in, a, in a sort of thick forest. And we come up to this. It's just a house. It's a cinder block house. I mean, it's not even to my memory, not even painted. It just looks like cinder blocks. I was like, well, that's weird. It looks like somebody's house. I and mean, there's a garage and everything, you know, just like a house. And, and you know, I get pulled inside and it's a house. I mean, there's like a couple couches and people are watching soccer on TV. There's someone, I mean, they're all in uniform. So someone over there, he's like stirring a pot with steam. You know, I don't know, he's making chili or something, or, you know, oatmeal or something. It's like something steaming. I mean, he's like cooking for them. And, and, you know, I get sat down at the dining room table and it's like time for the interrogation. But they know everything already. You know, I'm like trying to play again. Like, I'm just here. You know, I'm on a tourist visa, whatever. But you're a lawyer, aren't you? And I can't lie about this. That's bad news. Oh, yeah. But, you know, just here, I'm going to see some friends. You're going to see your Navi friends. And so then I realized, oh, this whole thing was probably a setup, right? Um, 
And maybe Costa Rica doesn't want protests on their side. Who knows how they would have guessed any of this? I I still wonder about that. Um, I'm probably going long on time, so I've got to, I'm going to speed it up here. You know, basically, I'm thrown into a, I don't know how to describe it, a garden shed. Um, it's not a jail proper. Literally, in more cinder blocks, a small, small enough hole that you could, like, it's really not even for a human to be inside. It's like where you'd put your tools and you reach in. But they got me in there. I couldn't stand up. It's like dirt floor, and there's one gate and all cinder blocks. And um, I was there for the night and uh, just kind of thinking because there's nothing else to do. You can't really stretch out. I was trying to sleep. It wasn't working. I had a very, very noisy roommate, and um, she he didn't speak English or Spanish, um, so we couldn't really come. I think we had a connection as much as you can connect with a frog. You know, we had a real connection and, um, you know, but it kept me awake. Um, very chatty. Um, and then I'm kind of plotting. What do I do? What's going to happen tomorrow? They said, they, I said, I want to call the embassy. They said the line, phone lines are down. Maybe, maybe not. We were in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then at, right around, right after dawn, the door sort of flies open. The gate, they open the gate very abruptly and sort of grab me. And they're like, hey, you're going back to Panama. We're, we're ejecting you. Okay, that's probably good. This isn't going so well over here. And we get to the border and same border crossing, same bridge, rickety bridge. We're walking across the bridge and this guy who's walking me across, not an officer anymore. I don't know who, it looks like middle management, like a, probably some bureaucrat. And he kind of whispers in my ear. I kind of guessed after this why he wanted to be the one to walk me over. There is the matter of the administrative fee still. Um, and I think, well, what? and I'm trying to like just slow play this. How much is the administrative fee? Well... It's the equivalent of $500. Actually, I think they asked for it in American cash. Um, and I was like, well, I don't have $500 to, you know what? And at some point I'm thinking, you know, I think we're probably halfway across the bridge. And this, you know, I was young at the time and this guy was not. <laughs> and I look at him and he kind of looks, why are you looking at me? And I just start running. <laughs> I just started running. And I'm yelling to the, the folks on the other side, the Panamanian side, like, look, I surrender myself to you. You know, I, he was trying to get a bribe out of me. They, you know, set me up. I'm all this stuff. And I'm in my, you know, Spanish that is probably making no sense to them at all because I'm so excited. I'm just screaming things. And, you know, he's running after me. I have the chance to look back one more time to see his face. And he's just like, what just happened? Um, we needed that story because it does get rough now because um, I get back. And it's much more violent. Um, you know, everyone does feel like this is it. It's now or never. And buses are turned over to block the highway and things are on fire. That led to a, an incredibly brutal response um, from the police with the aid of the company itself. So the police started with rubber bullets. Uh, they progressed to, I don't know if they're... If you, I grew up in a part of the country where people know what buckshot is, but it's basically for hunting. It's the scatter shot, like what you'd shoot with a shotgun. Pro is that it, you know, doesn't all, you know, it's not as lethal. Con is that it's can blind people and did blind several people. It is, it's not a precision thing at all. Um, tear gas, some at times chucked into schools and churches where families thought this would be safe. They're, they don't, won't dare to throw this into a church or a school. Um, and then live, you know, bullets at some point, not as much uh, as the others, but the numbers are disputed, but something close between half a dozen and a dozen people were, were killed um, by, by live, live fire. And all of this coming at times out of the helicopters provided by the company itself. So the police shooting out of company helicopters. 
And that sounds really, I'm not going to leave you there, though, because the, the good thing that came out of this and, you know, amidst all this tragedy was um, there were people there to witness it. And a lot of good people um, did their best. I remember we went, we went basically into the, the, um, the thick of the, the, the banana plantations and there, people would come up bringing evidence. Here's a canister, a, a tear gas canister that was spent. Pictures, you know, here's somebody shooting out of a helicopter. And before they were able to fully get control, we got that to, you know, got that out, got it to folks in the UN, got it to some NGOs, got it to newspapers. I mean, it didn't merit a lot. The New York Times gave it about this much in its international section. You know, it was basically violence in Panama without much explanation, unfortunately. But it was enough because within a few months that that law was repealed and it did lead to a longer term outcome. And so sometimes you can feel like you're you're losing right and, and it's not winnable and i think you know we have to hold on to hope that there are moments that feel like they're very dark they can really make a difference and these these generational and every other kind of um of cooperation of collaboration is really important we wouldn't get there without that